The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. There are business leaders that are making so much more than profit in their enterprises. They're elevating their businesses, teams, and themselves to add more value, and so can you. Welcome to the Business Elevation Show with host Chris Cooper. If you are looking for ways to elevate success while contributing to a better world, you'll want to listen for the next hour. Now here's your host, Chris Cooper. Hi, this is Chris Cooper and welcome to the Business Elevation Show on Voice America. It's great to be back with you again today. Um, And before I introduce you to my guest today, Anita de Franz, um, we're going to talk about her Olympic life. Um, I just want to say a big thank you to my guest last week, Jeff Colon. Uh, Jeff, um, we talked about um, disruptive marketing. Jeff's a senior guy in Microsoft, uh, and I found that a really, really insightful show. So if you want to find out more about so what's really going on in marketing today and you know what you really need to consider uh, when you're connecting with your consumers, uh, then do go back and listen to that show. So I am really, really excited about the show today. Um, I had the privilege of meeting Anita a few weeks ago when she was over in the UK. And Anita has just had the most incredible life and career and just made an amazing contribution to the world. And I think today for anybody out there who really wants to make a big difference um, in the world, uh, then this is a great um, interview for you to listen to. Um, Anita was actually named by Newsweek as one of the 150 women who shaped the world by French magazine L'Equip as one of 10 women who changed sport. And um, the Sporting News is one of the 100 most powerful people in sport uh, amongst many, many um, accolades. Uh, Anita is a member of the International Olympic Committee and the IOC Executive Board. She serves on the Juridical Commission of the IOC and on the Finance Commission, and she joined the ranks of the IOC um, as uh, you know some uh, some years ago. That was before, sorry. And she captained the U.S. women's rowing team and rowed in the eight that won a bronze medal in the 1976 Montreal Olympics. Um, she served as a vice president of the 1984 Los Angeles Olympic Organizing Committee. Was elected to IOC membership in '86. Uh, making her not only the first African-American, but also the first American woman to serve on the committee, which I think is is incredible. And she began her 28-year role um, stewarding the legacy of the 1984 LA Games as president of the LA 84 Foundation back in 1987. And in 1992, she was named a member of the IOC Executive Board. Um, Since then, she became the organization's first female vice president, a position she held until 2001. And she currently is the president of the Tubman Truth Organization, working to provide liberty and justice for all people. So an incredible bio there. Um, So a big warm welcome today to Anita de Franz. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, You're very, very welcome, Anita. Uh, Lovely to... um, uh, to hear from you, I'm assuming as you you have this uh, senior role in the you know with regards to um, LA, um, but you're based in LA somewhere. 
Uh, yes, yes, yes. I live in the city of angels, and I moved here in 1981 to work for the 1984 Olympic Organizing Committee, and in 10 minutes, I knew it was home. <laughs> now, I've had the privilege of having a very early copy of your book, and I've thoroughly enjoyed what I've read of it so far, because I only just got it a few days ago. Um, but I just really love you to share a little bit about what life was like growing up for you because it's a it's a fascinating tale and also I'm interested you know how you acquired through that your sense of injustice well I suppose uh well I'll start out I was born in Philadelphia and over my objection my parents moved to Indianapolis I think I screamed the whole way as a, a two-year-old yeah. <laughs> <We moved laughs> <laughs> which was uh, the home state for both of my parents. And uh, so began my formative years in Indianapolis, which is, for me, uh, a great place to grow up and a terrible place to grow old. We were still in the, you know, the last bit of the uh, uh, Jim Crow era, era, and it was a very racist town. There, of course, always there are nice people there, but there were some pretty horrible history there. In fact, my parents took us, I was three years old, I believe, uh, took us to see a sign outside of town that basically said, don't be here after dark with the N-word. And um, of course, I was too young to really understand what it meant, but I remembered it was a big deal to go and that the sign would be coming down. But the fact was, it was still up in an era in which I and my brother and my parents existed. So uh, we got, at home, we got a lot of understanding of, of, of history of the nation, uh, in part because my parents and my grandparents and my great-grandparents took part in making a better country. My great-grandfather was a part of the Exodusters, which was a group of people, of people who'd been emancipated from slavery and moved en masse from Tennessee to uh, Kansas. And that took a lot of planning and a lot of organization because Kansas was not necessarily a free state, but it was much better than Tennessee. So all of these histories, and then my grandfather became the, the leader of the Senate Avenue YMCA. And one thing to know, until uh, the 1970s, Almost all of the African-American YMCA's had street names. Street names so that men, African-American men who were traveling could know where it was and know that that was a safe place for them to stay the night. And, uh, and so instead of a name honoring somebody, it always had a street name, which I thought was odd until I learned, out, learned what the history was. My parents were both part of the uh, NAACP campus division at Indiana University where they met. So there was a long history of people doing things to make life better that I grew up in. And we then had talks around the dinner table to find out not only what had transpired for each of my brothers and me, but what had transpired in the world. Uh, so, so, um, you, you know, you. I mean, do, do you think that, uh, um, you know, obviously a massive, um, you know, sort of developments around um, sort of equality and things like that. But, um, you know, do, 
Do you still see some of those things occurring today? Oh, <laughs> unfortunately, <laughs> yes. Um, and I guess I was sensitive to it. Well, I, I can sort of, it's the right word. I, I feel empathy when I see something that I know is wrong. And I have this desire to make it right, which is not always possible to do. Uh, in, in fact, the, the, the purpose of Tubman Truth is to end slavery. There, right now, there's 32 million people enslaved this very moment. And this is the 21st century. It's, it's impossible that that can be happening. And that's one thing that I feel I need to do my best to end because there should be no reason that a 21st century person should be enslaved, nor should there be a 21st per century person enacting that act of enslavery. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's just not right. It's not right. Not right at all. Absolutely. I think one of the things when I when I sort of read the book, um, they, it's a sort of part about your younger life uh, that really struck with me is you know you break breaking your wrist at school and. <laughs> You know, the lack of care and help with that, which is quite incredible. Um, well, we were, yeah, we were the only African American kids at that school, and probably throughout the school district in Bloomington, Indiana, at the time. And uh, my poor brother had a harder time than I did. I only got to this one slight fight, where a guy uh, decided I shouldn't be there, and he took a swing at me, and I ducked. Unfortunately, I, we both fell down, and I managed to break my wrists. So I went to the school nurse who said, well, there's nothing I can do about it, so you'll just have to wait till after school's over. And so I did, and my mother was infuriated. We had a, a weekly visit to the, um, uh, to the allergists, since there are lots and lots of allergies in the uh, that part of the world with mold and all sorts of things growing. And uh, the allergist immediately took, took, uh, took care and sent me to uh, a place to get the wrist checked out and then get a, a cast. And a cast at that age was a cool thing to have because <laughs> people wanted to <laughs> So I had my, my uh, cast written on by everybody except the guy who swung at me. <laughs> yeah, he won't want to swing at you again with that on your wrist. Ah. Um, <laughs> now, your parents. Um, what I also really struck me was your parents seem to have, um, you know, some really wonderful principles that they, you know, they lived by. And I wondered, you know, what did you learn from them, and how has that helped you today? Well, they, let me. Well, they they taught us about community service. Absolutely. But in the world of education, my father, when he met my mother, was getting his uh, master's degree in sociology. Uh, he had written his thesis and his, his um, what do you call that, uh, uh, well, the advisor yeah, on the thesis decided that he should take out certain parts, the parts that had to do with the work of the NAACP, in a sociology thesis, of all things, and my father just plain refused to do that. So he did not get his master's in sociology, but he did go back and got his master's in social work because he was committed to working on behalf of other people. So, but he was not willing to 
take out parts of his his thesis in order to uh, please his advisor. Nevertheless, instead he just went through and got a, uh, a master's in a different area, not too far afield from uh, sociology. My mom was determined to go all the way, so she got first years, her bachelor degree, then uh, she, and for part of that time, uh, the two kids and she and dad would come down on weekends, lived in a tiny little trailer uh, on the campus of, of uh, Indiana University at Bloomington. Then when she went back for her master's, we moved to uh, married student housing at this point. It was not a trailer. It was actually a building. And uh, so we moved down there and spent a summer and a, and a semester of, for me, fourth grade in Indiana University school system in Bloomington. And uh, finally, she went on to get her doctorate, this time at University of Pittsburgh. And uh, this time I was in law school. Uh, she was undeterred and she managed to get her doctorate in communications. So I'm so proud of her. And then she went on to create the um, graduate school uh, division at University of San Francisco in multicultural education. Um, so your parents achieved a, a huge amount, really, from a, you know, a, a challenging start. Um, how, how did that, um, you know, what, what led you then to um, Olympic bronze medal? And, uh, you know, how did you feel about that? It must have been incredible. Achievement. We just got about three minutes, by the way, to commercial okay. break. Well, the odd thing is this whole time I was wondering why I couldn't take part in sport and my brothers could. Um, there was a little bit of, of softball in the summer at the, the park and I learned to swim when I was four. So I was on the swim team and learned some ethical lessons there. Uh, but there was no structured sport for girls. It wasn't until I got into college that I had a chance to take part in the sport that Hoosier Hysteria is about, and that is basketball. And it just seemed so odd that boys could do it, but girls could not. So I later learned that it was just because, because. In other words, there was no reason except to keep girls out of sport. And that became my mission to make sure that every girl and boy had access to sport because there's so many important lessons that one learns from sport. Being in the zone, understanding uh, teamwork, understanding the important part decision-making takes in sport, and being able to make those decisions. Just the whole world was uh, excluded for girls. And I'm delighted that Title IX, which is the Title IX to the Educational Opportunities Act, saying essentially that um, no, no student should be excluded from any opportunities that other students have, which is very logical since it's being funded by federal money. So we should all be uh, have access to the good things that everybody else has access to. And sports through litigation became uh, one of those things. It's interesting that the Title IX was originally enacted to help professors, women professors, because they were not being promoted. So it's a long story. Uh, it has helped professors, and I saw my mother struggle over time. 
and uh, and I knew my own lack of sports opportunity, so uh, I I learned about the importance of that act uh, for two generations. And then you went into you went into um, rowing and uh, yes, I had the great, great opportunity to take part in rowing at Connecticut College, and my life changed. It it opened a whole new world. I love the sport. I love being outdoors, and I love the fact we are non-combative. We don't hurt anyone. We're environmentalists. We put the water back right where we got it every stroke. Uh-huh. And it's just a great, great entree to a sport that is, I think, a magnificent sport. Wonderful. We're going to go to commercial break now. After after the break, I'd like to, to know how it felt to uh, win an Olympic bronze medal, and uh, we'll start to talk about um, you know some of the other things that you've really. Um, pioneered and uh, and, and um, you know how you managed to become a member of the IOC and what that's like and that sort of thing and those lessons. So we'll be back uh, with you again in just a couple of minutes. So do join us. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Would you like to work personally with the host of this show to help realize your potential? Chris Cooper supports business leaders and high-potential individuals to achieve greater success in their businesses and careers. Support includes the opportunity to join a high-return group mentoring and mastermind program called the Achiever Program, one-to-one mentoring and coaching, facilitated leader development workshops and speeches. Email info at bemoreachievemore.com to arrange a free, no-obligation consultation to see how Chris and his team can help you. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog, Press Pass? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus, topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at VAPressPass.com. That's VAPressPass.com. VA Press Pass by Voice America. All access, all the time. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into the Business Elevation Show with your host, Chris Cooper. If you have a question or comment about our show, please direct your emails to chris at chriscooper.co.uk. That's chris at chriscooper.co.uk. Now back to Chris Cooper. Uh, so, Anita, you were telling us a little bit before the break about the, um, you, you know, the fact that you had uh, gone into rowing. But I'm just sort of intrigued. You know, what did it feel like? You talked about this background that you had, which was clearly, uh, you know, challenging, and it was discriminatory. And your parents had, uh, you know, worked hard against all of the odds to get some amazing uh, qualifications. But then you became uh, an Olympic athlete. I mean, what did that feel like? My father, when we were children, kept saying uh, he wanted us to be the first African-Americans on the swim team. 
And I don't know if that was his excuse for getting to take a swimming every Sunday or if he really was pointing us to have goals that we would not expect to have. Uh, but in either case, I'm pretty sure he was clear. It was clear that we would probably not be on uh, the Olympic swim team because you have to have far more opportunity in the pool and better coaching than we had. Uh, but it kind of got this Olympic idea in our mind, along with the fact that my uh, elementary school phys ed teacher was herself an Olympian. And uh, Joanne Terry uh, Grissom uh, was her name. And I could tell my parents felt that she was a special person. I wasn't quite clear what an Olympian was, but it was someone to be recognized for achievements, and that was for certain. But for me, again, there was no sports opportunity until I got into college, and thank goodness I went to college. And I went to Connecticut College, which was the right size that you could try more than one thing. I started out in basketball, which was the sport that I grew up in, uh, it was a little bit embarrassing, my tryout, because at one point the coach said, Anita, take the high post. I had no idea what that meant, because I'd watched basketball, but I'd never been coached, nor had I bothered to read about it. I thought, oh, you just, you know, you try not to run over another player and try to get the ball in the hoop, your hoop, preferably. So <laughs> when she said, take the high post, I kind of moved a little bit to the left and back to the right and waited to be corrected, but I might have been close enough that the coach didn't need to connect me, uh, correct me rather, and we wound up. I wound up on the team. And I talk about because it it's very important. It's this sport in which I had my first moment of excellence, which sport brings. By the way, I believe that sport is a birthright. It's something we humans do. No other sport uh, no other uh, animal on the face of the earth, no other species takes part in sport. Mm-hmm. Uh, have, you, have you ever seen any other species set up hurdles and race across those hurdles to see who could get to the finish line? Uh, it certainly hasn't. <laughs> I, yeah, I've seen an ant crawl onto a twig to get across a puddle of water. I've never seen ants line up the twigs and race across, across a puddle of water. It's something we humans do because it's important to us. It's a set of challenges. It's a, it's a community that you form when you're on a team. It's, it's a, a promise to play by a certain set of rules that you devise exactly for that sport. And these concepts are very important in the rest of our lives. And I hope that we can do a bit more study of it because there's so much important in taking part in sports. Besides the, the fact that when you are a child, you learn about working with a team. You learn about setting goals for the, for the entire group that sometimes you can achieve at that moment. And sometimes you have to wait till the next, next year. All of these things are important uh, for young people in our community and certainly in a capitalist community. The uh, ideals, ideas of sport are important uh, in the business world. And that kind of crossover is something I'd like to talk about and uh, mention a little bit in in the book that I know you're still reading. Um, But how did I get into the sport? It was luck. I was walking across campus one day 
and there was a large boat in front of a building and I went over to inquire as to what it was and the gentleman standing there said it's rowing and you'd be perfect for it and I thought now there's a line I said I've never been perfect for anything so far <laughs> so he said well just meet us at a certain spot at uh, I think it was 5.30 and, uh, two days later in the week and I did and we drove off to a place called Blood Street Skulls. This is New England, so that was, it seemed appropriate name. That was, of course, Skulls, S-C-U-L-L-S, uh, where this gentleman had uh, put together a boathouse, and his goal was to make sure that uh, women had a chance to row. Uh, interesting man, uh, Emerson was his last name, and he put a lot of his family fortune into... Uh, setting up programs, especially in Connecticut, uh, for rowing at the collegiate level and especially for women. So uh, Fred Emerson was a great benefactor for us all. So uh, once we got to Blood Street Skulls and I learned what it meant to be a rower, it wasn't pretty at first because only one person on the entire team had ever rowed before. So we all (laughs) had to learn about the stroke and getting the stroke together and not banging your fingernails on the uh, on the side the gunnels of the boat um, all of the things that you have to learn we all learn and it was the first time I learned a sport from the beginning and I I really fell in love with it because I I loved the fact that we were outdoors as I said earlier and we were a type of team where we didn't talk only the coxswain talked on the water which let us be bottled up until we got off of the water and we tend to talk a lot as rowers once we're off the water (laughs) but on the water we follow the rules and uh, focus on what we're doing on the water a great sport it's a lifelong sport and rowers have a sense for what a rower anywhere in the world has gone through to become a rower Uh, and and you you, you then end up um uh, funny stuff in Olympic Games um, and a captain uh, yes. and you won a bronze medal um, you know how did that oh. feel and was your, was your father very proud I hope he was oh he was very proud and I guess my mom might have been just a little bit proud of him. <laughs> um, but it was a lot of work I graduated well my senior year at Connecticut College I was demoted to JV which was a terrible experience Uh, I stayed on the team because I knew the other women in the four needed me because you needed to have four. And if I did not stick around, they would not be able to race and they would lose their opportunities that year. So I I did love rowing, so I didn't mind it. It was humiliating, but so what? Not everybody knew I'd been demoted, just members of my team and me. So uh, I finished the season and then I moved to Philadelphia to my parents' joy to attend uh, University of Pennsylvania Law School, but also to my joy to start at Vesper Boat Club. Vesper has a history of a club that created uh, Olympic and world champions. That's part of our motto. And it had been exclusively male until, let's see, it was... I think 1971 that it opened its doors to women and it was one of the first boathouses on Boathouse Row in Philadelphia that did that. There was a women's boathouse um, 
at the end of the row, but that was different. This was the, one of the most serious boathouses next to the University of Pennsylvania, and it was next to the University of Pennsylvania boathouse in terms of in terms of wanting to have excellence in uh, in its racing and and making sure that the athletes who came there would have a chance to become world and Olympic champions. So opening that boathouse to women, and that was John B. Kelly, the son of John B. Kelly Sr., who was a brick worker and was not allowed to row in the Royal Henley Regatta because he worked with his hands for a living. His son would avenge him many years later. And uh, although I never got to row in the Henley, I got to be prize giver one time, which was a lot of fun. Yeah, there's so many traditions in the sport, and the sport is so old. In fact, the first intercollegiate uh, sport activity was a race, regatta, a race between Harvard and Yale, and that was in 1852. Wow. So I'm, I'm going to have to move us on a little bit now because I'm, I'm, you know, really intrigued. You went on, you won this, um, this medal. Um, and then I think you did something quite astonishing in the way that you, you, know, you became a, an activist athlete and really took on the status quo around, um, I think it was the American team not going to uh, an Olympic Games in Russia. Was that correct? Well, that's true. It started with our team not getting all of our uniforms. It took me a year to make sure every member of the women's rowing team got everything that the rest of the team got. I think that was my first bit of activism. And then um, I was a part of getting the, the law, the Amateur Sports Act, which is now called the uh, uh, Ted Stevens Amateur and Olympic Sports Act of 1978. But I testified for the first time uh, in, uh, before Congress on the importance of having this act in place. So I understood what was in it. And then came the boycott or the proposed boycott of 1980. And I realized that the Amateur Sports Act said nothing about keeping the team home. Only in, uh, if a team was a seri in, in serious danger, physical danger, would uh, the team be taken out of the danger. But it said nothing about staying home from Olympic Games. And I knew that. And I did my best to point that out. And there was some notion that we were being funded federally, not a penny of federal funding, not a penny of government funding at any level came to us in 1976 or 1980. We were on our own. So it was an individual act. And to me, it was just wrong for uh, the government actors to say, nope, nope, we, we have to decide this. And we've decided that you need to stay home. I, I went to a lot of hearings, did a lot of discussion, and I, I think that the most important, one of the most important moments was when I was at a briefing with the uh, Joint Chiefs of Staff in the U.S., that's the head of the military divisions, all of them, and his name, interestingly enough, he was in, from the Air Force, but his name was uh, Davy Jones, which we associate with Navy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But he was... Uh, uh, the Air Force, and I had the opportunity to say to them and ask the question, can you tell me that one life will be saved if our team does not compete in Moscow? 
To which she responded, no, I can't. And so I said, this is not good. Um, I, sorry. Yeah, yeah. So, 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 so did you, we've got about four minutes till the break, but I, I mean, you took a real stand over this, and, uh, and I guess it was probably a difficult thing that you had to do, but um, did, did that... Um, you know, did, did taking that stand, did it label you as, um, you know, a real sort of pioneer or did it, um, was the risk of it labeling you as a, as a troublemaker, you know, going outside the status quo and, and challenging government in the way you did? Uh, it was more the latter because uh, there was a feeling that Americans should follow the president. Well, I'm willing to follow the president when it's uh, a righteous thing to do. I'm not willing to follow the president when it's wrong. And because I'd experienced the games and I knew what it was like to live in the Olympic Village where people of all sizes, shapes, colors, and both sexes uh, are there because they've been selected by the nation, they're successful people, and to live in that community of successful people and make friends and take that experience with you will do far more to making the world a safe place than staying away and saying that we couldn't come because the whole country was doing bad things in the world. To me, that was just not, it, it's not the same thing. So I worked hard and wound up actually suing the United States Olympic Committee, which I'm sure did not make me friends uh, with a lot of folks, but uh, we stood up for our rights. And uh, I was right. We should have been able to decide to go on our own, and that's what happened with many countries. Unfortunately, Canada was not one of them, nor was Japan or West Germany. But much of Europe actually competed under the Olympic flag. They didn't take their nation's flag, but they went to Moscow and competed. Um, some friends and I were traveling in Europe at about the same time, and we went to East Germany and asked around, primarily because we got lost, we couldn't find the gate out, but we talked to people <laughs> about what they thought about the Moscow games, and you know, you know the, the response we got was the U.S. was not there because we were afraid we were going to lose, which really wasn't why we weren't there. We weren't there because yeah. the president thought it would somehow change the uh, invasion of Afghanistan, which was on a border of, of the Soviet Union at the time. It was I'm, it was naive. They'd already started a trade with wheat with the Soviet Union in June, which was on the front page of the uh, Wall Street Journal, and all sorts of other things were happening. It was only the athletes that were being punished and forced to stay at home. And you can't give back that opportunity to compete in the games. And I finally figured out how to express it in, a, in, a, in an essay I wrote uh, 20 years later and got published 25 years later because we're the team with no result. The world doesn't know us and we live the rest of our lives with no result. So we're going to go to commercial break now. So after the break, um, you know, I'm intrigued. You um, you clearly took this stand uh, and uh, uh, you know against the Olympic Committee, but you end up being a, uh, a member of it and the first black American um person um to be able to, to ever do that which i think is just incredible and and uh, a woman so we'll, we'll come back and talk about that after the break and really what you've learned being part of the ioc and uh, you know what you've uh, contributed to it which i know is a, it's a huge amount so we're back again in just a couple of minutes 
from the boardroom to you. Voice America Business Network. Would you like to work personally with the host of this show to help realize your potential? Chris Cooper supports business leaders and high potential individuals to achieve greater success in their businesses and careers. Support includes the opportunity to join a high-return group mentoring and mastermind program called the Achiever Program, one-to-one mentoring and coaching, facilitated leader development workshops and speeches. Email info at bemoreachievemore.com to arrange a free, no-obligation consultation to see how Chris and his team can help you. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You are tuned into the Business Elevation Show with your host, Chris Cooper. If you have a question or comment about our show, please direct your emails to chris at chriscooper.co.uk. That's chris at chriscooper.co.uk. Now back to Chris Cooper. Hi, this is Chris Cooper. I'm with Anita de France. We're talking about uh, Anita's Olympic life and uh, a new book, which is coming out soon, My Olympic Life in October which you'll be able to access from Amazon.com. Uh, in fact, you can pre-order it now, actually. Um, so, uh, Anita, you um, took a real stand um, against the IOC, yet you became no, a... No, it's the USOC. Oh, so sorry, sorry, yes. Um, um, so it was against the US um, and the, 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 the Olympic. So, so it was against the government? Well, actually, it, in a sense, was because the government joined as amicus, uh, or, well, we have a... When I was suing the, uh, the government, a solicitor general who basically works for the uh, White House joined, so uh, the White House, in a sense, felt that I was suing them, and they're protecting the USOC. So, so how did this um, then happen that you became a um, you know a part of the IOC? Um, uh, how, how did that how did that happen? And you know what uh, have you learned as a, as a IOC member? Well, the short answer is someone died, so (laughs) position (laughs) became open. Um, I had worked uh, at the organizing committee after the 1980 stuff. Uh, Peter Ubroth, president of the organizing committee for the 84 Games, and Harry Usher, his second-in-command, both spoke to me about coming to to Los Angeles and work, and I thought they would just be nice to me because... Uh, what happened in 1980, and another friend, the rower, who was 
the uh, treasurer of the USOC, so on the board of the LA Olympic Organizing Committee, the executive board said, no, no, they're very serious. They want you to come out. So let's go uh, out a bit early before the next board meeting and you can look around and I can look around and you can talk to Harry about uh, actually coming to work. So we did and um, and I did. I talked to Harry and uh, uh, Harry Usher and we made a deal and I decided to come out later that very summer of 1981 and it changed my life in a very positive way working for for Peter Ubroth, who was a, I mean, he was a perfect person at the perfect time. He had the absolute skills we needed to make this successful because there was not a penny of government backing. And it was the first time there'd been a games with no government backing. But there was confidence in uh, being able to raise the fund from the corporate world. And since we didn't have to build anything, because the facilities in LA seemed to be there always, uh, we were able to pull it off and have a surplus. So uh, I came to see IOC members when they were, or they came to see me in a sense, when, when IOC members came to the Games and when the National Olympic Committee's members were in the village, they had a second brush with me in terms of having read about me worldwide. I was more famous than I was in the U.S. where I guess I was infamous not famous, <laughs> so they knew the name, and then they saw me at the village. When it came time to fulfill a position two years later, my name was among the, the uh, six names that the United States Olympic Committee put forward, again, with their policy of having athletes uh, take part in any group that has poli- policy-making uh, implications, so there needs to be at least one athletes who had competed within the last 10 years among those names put forward. And as I understand it, the last the three names that the executive board considered were Peter Uberoff, uh, Donna Deverona, and me. And uh, I was the one who was elected in 1986 and have served and learned all these years since about what I can do, what we each can do for the Olympic movement. I, I, def- I define my job as being responsible to ensure that the Olympic Games endure and flourish. And uh, early on, again, because I realized at the Games there weren't as many women as there were men, and women were segregated into one piece of the housing, and the men were in the other two-thirds, which seemed to me very odd. Um, at Connecticut College, that the uh, dormitories were integrated, male and female, and I didn't understand why at uh, the Olympic Games that shouldn't be the case. So I had made that case to Peter and uh, to Harry, and they said, okay, well, you present it to the executive board of the IOC. I said, okay, I don't mind doing that. So I did, and as I did, I heard one uh, member say, extraordinary, someone else said, revolutionary, and I thought, no, <laughs> it's it's the uh, logical extension of what we're doing because that way an NOC can decide where it's at. It's National Olympic Committee. I've got to stop talking in alphabets. Uh, the National Olympic Committees who are responsible for the teams could decide where and in which, uh, in, in which housing the, each of the athletes stayed. It was up to them. Uh, and it, quite frankly, it would have been impossible 
to have enough housing to have a separate village for women, but I didn't think it was necessary. So we were able to make that change. Um, but how did I get there? I guess by having worked hard at the 84 games, they knew of my actions in 80. So I was the one who was elected and it changed my life because it meant that I could work on the issues that still remain within the Olympic movement to wit, having opportunities for women. And after the 1994 Congress, we did a, uh, a review commission, and out of that came the clear need for more women to be involved in Olympic sport on the field of play and in decision-making and throughout the world of sport. And President Samrat then assigned that task to me. And so from 1995 to 2013, it had to be after the uh, Centennial uh, Congress, which was in uh, 1994, since that was when the Olympic movement was created by Pierre de Coubertin in a meeting uh, which had several items on the agenda. The final one was creating a modern Olympic Games, and uh, that was the agenda point that won the day for sure. So, um, 100th anniversary of the Congress, the report, and then it came time to really start making changes so that all athletes could come to the games. We have this uh, call out to all the youth of the world to come to the next Olympic Games. And it said youth of the world, it didn't say young men of the world. So I was confident that whether or not Pierre de Coubertin believed women should compete, it had to be the youth of the world, which included women. And so we began working on it. And I'm proud to say that while from 1900 to 1988, around 12,000 women competed at the Games. From 1988 to now, over 32,000 women have competed at the Olympic Games. So there's been a dramatic increase. Now women take part in every sport on the Olympic Games program, and we're working toward 50-50 among you know, 50% of the athletes being women and 50% of the athletes being men. And we're going to approximate that closer and more closely. And certainly by 2024, we should be there. And at the Youth Games this coming year, we will be there. We need more women in, in, um, in the decision-making arenas, but we have 36,000 women who have taken part in the Olympic Games. Uh, from among that number, certainly there are enough women to help and volunteer their time, which is what it primarily takes at the international level to help sport continue to endure and flourish. Wow. So, awesome. And so would that, would that be, um, you know, in your, your view, is that, uh, would that be your biggest legacy, the one that you're most proud of? Yeah, I think so far, so far, uh, that and certain sports being on the program and certain decisions that we've made across the time I've been an IOC member, there have been a lot of important decisions that had to do with uh, more than uh, the involvement of half of the population of the world. Um, some of the decisions we make in the scourge of doping have been very important and to make sure that athletes have a chance to compete. And most recently, having the, uh, the um, refugee team compete so that people, even in the 
terrible situation of being in a refugee camp, some people for decades, uh, the opportunity to compete at the Olympic Games is no longer just fantasy, it's the possibility. And I think that was one of the more important things we've done. Wonderful. And if you, looking back on your, your sort of career and experiences and achievements, if you were to give, you know, a few points of advice to, uh, you know, business leaders, maybe in other fields from all of your experience and, you know, lessons, what were those, that, you know, those pieces of advice or those um, lessons that you would, you know, give to people um, to help them to, you know, achieve more and to make a real difference like you've done? Ah, boy, there are a lot of things that have helped me do this. Among them um, is respecting people and knowing that everyone has something to offer. In the world of business, often it's fast-paced and you have these levels and levels, which could also be defined as silos and silos, <laughs> where there is a cross-communication. And that's one of the, the problems that you have uh, when you get to, to be a large corporation. You can't step across lines or into different silos. And that is so important to have communication across and to be willing to hear and to be willing to speak to one another is essential. Um, one of the things that uh, it's kind of it was taught to me as a golden rule, do unto others as you would have done unto yourself. That's at least one evocation of that rule. Uh, <laughs> is to to really think about that. Would you want to be treated a certain way? And before you start treating someone that way, you can understand that that might not make you happy. So let's find a different way. And in the world of management, it's very important to understand that. Um, teamwork. How to put together a team and help you be successful. It may not always be the one that you think it should be immediately, but uh, if you take time and, and learn what the team members have to offer, you can develop a team that's even better. I, I call it, uh, what did I call it? To stand, it's a, it's a theory of, of servant leadership where yeah, you would yeah. ask someone to do something that you wouldn't do. Maybe you wouldn't have the skills to do it and you can understand that, but why ask them to do, someone to do something that you would never want to do in a way that you would never want to do it? So uh, I think that's also a very important concept. And the, the final one is we always we forget to ask for help. And um, that is so essential. It's why we have more than one person on the face of the earth is we get to help one another, I think. Uh, so uh, be willing to ask for help always. Because you'll never know what kind of good advice you'll get. Then my my final little bit of, uh, especially the sport that I've learned, is that children want to please and adults want to feel needed, and that's why sports is such a great crucible for adults to feel needed and become coaches, and children to please by learning the skills. But when you're working with adults, adults want to feel needed. That's key. And if you understand that, you can do a better job managing people. Oh, that's really tremendous advice there. And um, 
you know, one that you you didn't mention, but I, I kind of get a sense that you've maybe done this throughout your career is, um, you know, maybe be prepared to take a stand when you think something that is just blatantly wrong. Yeah, you know, trust your your instincts. Trust your instincts. Uh, if you have a concern, talk to some other people. I talked to a lot of athletes before I filed the lawsuit because I needed other names in mind, but to just make sure I was doing the right thing and I would not destroy the Olympic movement uh, by, by uh, filing a suit against the U.S. Olympic Committee. The IOC uh, watched it and wondered what would happen, but it was only the USOC, which was my home country. But I took a stand because I believed in it, I did talk to my parents about, since our names are so singular and everyone would know it was the same family, um, and they said I had to do what I needed to do. So, yeah, you are the best arbiter of your world. It's not a bad idea to run it past people who you trust. You've got to make the decision to take a stand. Well, I've come to the end of the interview now, Anita. I've absolutely loved talking to you and just hearing your your tremendous story. Um, I loved meeting you a few weeks ago as well in in yes. London. I've enjoyed reading your book. Um, it's it's hugely inspirational. You know where you know where your origins came from and uh, your, your sort of background and what that's led and the things that you've achieved in your life. I think uh, you just demonstrated those principles of courage and respect and communication and clearly a lot of team working in there as well so so huge thank you for being on today hope you've enjoyed it i enjoyed it immensely thank you so much for giving me this opportunity you're very welcome and uh, my olympic life is available for pre-order uh, from amazon.com it comes out on october the 17th that's 2017 um so uh, just uh, in the next uh, few days when this recording's taken place um, you'll probably be listening to this, um, you know, the various months in the future. So I would recommend you get hold of a copy of that book. It's uh, it's inspiring. It's thought provoking, uh, and I think uh, you can learn a lot from uh, the life of uh, Anita De Franz. Um, so uh, to find out more about uh, Anita, um, do go to um, uh, to Anita's uh, website, um, which is anitadefranz.com. That's A N I T A D E. F-R-A-N-T-Z.com and you can find out more about the Tubman Truth Corporation as well and, uh, and, and the origins of that which is also is a fascinating story as well so uh, next week's show we'll be talking about strategy um, with uh, Robert Craven and Adam Harris so uh, do join us for that uh, and once again a huge thank you to my guest today Anita DeFrance Thank you We thank you for listening to the Business Elevation Show. Please join your host, Chris Cooper, again next Friday at 8 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Be more. Achieve more. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.